The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Amen. Thank you, Jay. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 7. If you have a Bible and you've turned it there already, that's great. You'll see that there are 73 verses that we need to cover today. Um, We're going to read five and a half of them, though, okay? We're going to read five and a half of the 73 for two reasons. One, the vast majority of it is a list of names and numbers, and we've, if you've been with us, if you haven't, this is kind of inside joke, I'm sorry, but I don't do so good with the names, and just a list of them is terrifying to me. The other reason, though, is that the list that's in Nehemiah 7 is the exact same list that was in Ezra chapter 2. So if you were here on June 10th, we did Ezra chapter 2, the exact same list. So I'm calling nope on that going to do the first five verses or so, four or five verses, and then I promise God still has something really good to teach us from a list. We're just not going to read it today. So, Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 1. After the wall had been rebuilt, if you were with us last week, Nehemiah just kind of lobs it in there that, hey, we completed the task. Took us 52 days. We're, We're pretty amazing, and it just keeps on going. So, the wall is built. He had set the doors In place, and then gatekeepers, musicians, and Levites were appointed. These are three different groups of people that work together in the temple, typically. Okay, the gatekeepers are kind of the security for the temple. The Levites are the priests, the musicians are the ones who lead the worship. It works very well together. Nehemiah is expanding them out to the city wall. Okay, now we're not sure if the temple is currently operating. We think it is. We think there's temple worship. We think there's things going on. But Nehemiah is obviously still concerned about attack now that the wall is done. So he goes, here's what we're going to do. You guys work great together. Each of you are going to take a gate. There's 10 gates. We want the gatekeepers to guard it. We're just going to spread you out a little bit further. Verse 2, I put in charge of Jerusalem the whole thing. But in charge of the entire city, my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah. Now, there's some people think this might be the same person. I completely disagree. I think it's two different people, but their names are very, very similar. With Hananiah, he was the commander of the citadel. He was the chief officer in charge of all the guards in Jerusalem. So we had the gatekeepers, but there is a small security force. Don't think an army. They don't really have an army, but there's a small security force, and Hananiah was over that. So this makes logical sense to me. You have kind of a new governor. You have the brother of Nehemiah. Hey, you're in charge of the city. Hey, since the city could come under attack, I'm going to kind of put you together as co-leaders. we got the guy that can protect and the guy that can lead. But I love this about Nehemiah. His project's done. But he realizes that just because his project is done, now life still has to move forward. But he wasn't sent by God to lead Jerusalem, so he appoints someone to do so. I love when people understand their call. And they don't try and do more than God's called them to do. They, they get the job done and they say, hey, I, I don't need any pride. I don't need any recognition. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna continue to do my thing now, whatever God has next for me, but I'm gonna put my brother in charge of Jerusalem. Now, you maybe wouldn't put the general in charge. It's kind of a dictatorship. I mean, what's his leadership capacity? But look at this. Here, here's why he got to lead with Han and I. Because he was a man of integrity And he feared God more than most people do. The idea of fearing God is all throughout scripture. Old and New Testament. Fear the Lord. 
for many of us, that is a very, very complicated idea. Fear God. Why, why would a God of love want us to fear him? It says perfect love casts out all fear. Why, why would God want us to fear him? Well, that word fear, while it's translated fear many times in scripture, that same Hebrew word is also translated stand in awe or be awed. So this man, Hananiah, he stood in awe of God more than most people. That's a wonderful characteristic, someone who you want to lead. Another definition is to fear, but it's also to revere, honor, or respect. Yes, he had a respect and a reverence and an honor for God that most people didn't have. Therefore, he was exalted into leadership. Verse 3, I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. He said in Two chapters back, the stars of night. He, he likes using astrology to give us times. Basically this, the city gates will be opened only in the afternoon. Otherwise, they need to be locked, need to be shut down. We don't want a ton of people coming in and out. We need to kind of keep this thing secured. So when it's afternoon, we can open the gates, okay? But other than that, during the night, during the early morning, I want them shut and I want them locked for our protection, while the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some, of their, some at their posts and some near their own homes. So even though the gates are open during the afternoon, tell the gatekeepers, the ones he had appointed a few verses before, tell them to keep them locked unless someone needs to go in or out. Okay, you're getting a picture of like this, you know, this elderly person who just peeks out the people all the time. It's like, it's, it's scary to open the door. So keep the door locked at all times. Someone needs to come in and out. We got gatekeepers there to let them do that. And then he also said, hey, I know we have these guards. I know we have Hannah and I over these guards, but we're going to need just common residents to take posts and watch. There's a lot of concern here. I think still that the city is in a weak state, and we'll find out why in the next verse. But it's weak, and so we need people on guard Specifically, let them guard the front of their house. We need them to guard the front of their house because they'll probably fight and protect it more than other parts of the city. Verse 4. Now the city was large and spacious. Plenty of room. That's a good thing. But there were few people in it. And the houses had not yet been rebuilt. There's a population problem. And they're going, 43,000 people came with Ezra. They've had baby. Like, what, where are all the people? Why haven't they built houses? What, what in the world is making this great city that has this cool new wall? Why, why is it empty? Well, it's just like many of us. Very few people choose to live in the city. They'd much prefer to go to Newcastle and get five acres and build a big old house, right? It's the same deal. You, urban living versus country living. In the area of Judah, while it's not the most beautiful country, it's probably better than a burnt down city. So the 43,000 people who came back with Ezra, many of them are like, yeah, that's, no thank you. We'll, we'll head down the road and get us some land and plant a garden. And that's what had happened. So there were a few people living in the city. Now, he says here in verse 4, the houses had not been rebuilt yet. But in verse 3, he said that people were stationed in front of their house. So we have a contradiction here. The Bible's completely wrong, right? That has to be the problem. Um, no, I think there's two answers to this. I, I think there hasn't been a ton of new construction because they were focusing on the wall and most people who built new went outside the city to do so. So I don't think there's been a ton of new construction. But even beyond that, who, if you have been in or around the Oklahoma City area for 30 years, raise your hand. If you've been in or around 30 years, Oklahoma City area, like Norman counts, 30 years. 
If 30 years ago, I had made the statement, there are no homes in Bricktown, would that have been a true or a false statement? It'd been true, but it's not completely true, right? There are houses. There are people living there. There weren't a bunch, though. It's very rare, and no one was like, you know where I want to go live right now? I want to go live in Bricktown. And now 30 years later, it's like, I want to be in, you know, it's just crazy how things happen like that. But that would have been a very true statement. And I think that's all that Nehemiah is saying here. Hey, no, this is a ghost town. People aren't wanting to live here. There are houses, there are people, but just not enough. So he has to come up with a plan to basically repopulate Jerusalem. Verse 5. So my God put it on my heart. I love that once again gives credit to God for this plan, for this idea. He's being sensitive to God, to the spirit. God put on my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. We would call that a census. Okay, that he goes, here's what we need to do. We need to get a good idea of who we've got, not just here in Jerusalem, but all throughout Judah. We need to know who we have, and we've already got this list to compare it to of those who came initially from Babylon. So we'll, we'll divide it by families, we'll count it by families, and I think the ultimate goal here, okay, here, here's the why behind this. The ultimate goal was to say, hey, we need representation from every clan, from every family in the city, so once you're counted, if, if your family who's came here to rebuild the city, that, that was the goal decades ago, it, you got to send someone back to the city to help populate it. I think that was the ultimate plan. He says, I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return, okay? This is what I found written there. And then we go on for 68 verses with names and numbers and some supplies that were sent um, the list is nearly identical. I say nearly, hear me, nearly identical to the one in Ezra chapter two, verses one through 70. Okay, if you really wanna sleep good tonight, go compare and contrast the few minute differences. There are some there. Um, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and make some of these statements so you know that I did actually do some homework and studied. Uh, verses 70 through 72 of Nehemiah's account seem to clarify better Ezra chapter two's account of the same thing. Um, and so there's some debate then, like who wrote the list down first, who was copying off someone else. If you want to make a big pitch for that, you sure can. Um, but one interesting fact is that this entire section, the rest of chapter 7, okay, appears to have come from a document known as Nehemiah's Memoirs, okay? Nehemiah, later in life, wrote down his memoirs, just like many great leaders did, and we can see here and in many other instances further down in the book of Nehemiah that whoever was kind of putting this whole story together, whether it was Ezra or whether it was Nehemiah, whether it was a scribe working for them or whatever, they now start to reference these memoirs because here's the, the biggest thing for me. This list, why it's right here, some of the different, it just doesn't fit. And we'll read verse 73. We are going to read the last verse. And it really just doesn't fit the story. So I think basically an editor just goes, here, let's, let's put that in here because it makes sense because he mentioned the genealogical record. So all that to be said. I want to go back, though, okay? And you, we could have easily, easily, easily missed this. And maybe we should, but it jumped out at me. David, another great leader in Jerusalem. King David, right? He took a census once as well. 
and he was rebuked beyond belief for doing so. His own assistance came and went, how you are, you are literally failing to trust God by counting our people. What are you doing? And he had to repent before the Lord even. And now we have another leader in Jerusalem doing the exact same thing, but he's saying, God put it on my heart to do this. So here's what happened in 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1. Okay, 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census. God put it on my heart to take a census. Several hundred years earlier, Satan rose up and caused another leader to take a census. That, why? What, what in the world's going on here? Well, it's the reason. Much like everything with God, the heart matters. David was afraid of the Philistines. He feared their attack. Now, Nehemiah, he's guarding the walls day and night, not opening the bolts. Like, I mean, he, he's clearly aware that there's a threat of attack too. And so he's, he's counting his people. Well, David only wanted to count the fighting men because he wanted to know logically, did he stand a chance if he took his army out to battle the Philistines? We know how many men they've got. Uh, guys, commanders, go count our men and let me know if this makes sense to go out on the plains. Well, here's the deal. God had told him to go do it. And he was scared. He was afraid. He was being disobedient. And oftentimes in our disobedience, what we try to do to like muster our strength and our courage of is we're like, well, let's, let's just look at this logically. You know, I mean, God, God called me to do it, but come on, God. There, you, sometimes you got to plan. Sometimes you got to put pencil to paper and see if this is even a wise decision. And God says, no, you don't. My math doesn't work like your math. My strength doesn't work like your strength. If I told you to do it and I told you you'd have victory when you do it, you need to do it. You need to trust me. And if there's anything that we can see from our time studying the life of Nehemiah, that's him. He always trusted God, even in the faith of immense opposition. He always trusted God. He's not trying to put pencil to paper here. He's not trying to think, can, can I protect them? If, can I protect the city if, if the invaders come? He's wanting to fill the city of God back up so more people can worship God. The heart always matters. And we see here David and Nehemiah and how their hearts were different. Um, not to derail this, but just skip all the way down to verse 73. The last part of verse 73, there, if you're reading out of a book Bible, there's probably a header division there even. Like there's clearly a division in, in the idea and the flow of the text. And um, what it says in Nehemiah chapter seven, verse 73, it says, when the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns, and then it's the end of the chapter. And if you flip over to chapter 8, which we're not going to do today, because we we'll do it next week, it makes no sense. In fact, this same sentiment is going to be found in the first verse of chapter 11. Okay, so, so, so this is where I think kind of different people are putting this book together at this point. Someone started to write chapter 11, and they're like, oh, wait, we got we to talk about some stuff that happened. <laughs> There's some sin that's going to happen. There's some repentance that's going to happen. And then we'll get to chapter 11, and we'll talk about when everyone came back into Jerusalem and, and filled up the city. So I just, I don't think that fits there. I just wanted you to notice that. Now, just, I ask your forgiveness for not reading all the rest of it, but that concludes chapter 7. 
And I want to come back to this idea of obedience to God that sometimes looks like disobedience. And, and that was the question I wrote down in my study. It's like, hey, like, sometimes does God really call us to do something that he got mad at someone else for doing earlier? Is, is, that, is that a schizophrenic God? Is that, is that obedience at all? Like, what Nehemiah did, David wasn't supposed to do, that, that's, it, it messed me up. And so, so I started to trace it. I started to try and track it. Like, when does obedience look like someone else's disobedience? And, and I'll be honest, I came up with some like, ideas, some biblical stories that, that maybe fit that idea. But then it was, I think, Thursday afternoon when the Lord just goes, disobedience never looks like obedience and obedience never looks like disobedience. Don't deceive your church, man. Like, you gotta change your terms. This, the, you're, you're about to tell people, that, hey, it was, it was bad for him, but it's good for me. You know, like, you can't, that's not how I work. That's not what it is. So, so then I, I felt like, okay, let's, let's look one step deeper at this, at the why. And it was then very evident and this theme that I want to trace out for the rest of our time this morning is all throughout scripture. It's the idea not of disobedience and obedience. What we're seeing between Nehemiah and David is the difference between fear and faith. And fear is always combated by faith. That, that, that's if, if you're struggling with fear, anxiety, worry, like if that is defining you, that is always combated with faith, faith in a God that is bigger, better, stronger, greater. But it's very easy to say that. It's very hard to do it. And so then I started to look through Scripture, and I'm like, where, where in Scripture does, does it show people who are crippled by their fear? Well, some pretty big ones. Moses. Okay, called by God to return to Egypt, confront Pharaoh, and set my people free. When God first told him to do so, and Moses said, uh-uh, I, I can't do that, I can't talk, this is, this is not my call, God. There's no chance that I can go confront Pharaoh, I've got, maybe you didn't know this, I've got some past there, I've got some history and his fear nearly crippled his faith, but ultimately God moved him. Do you remember when the Israelites cross the Jordan River and they're, they're about to head into the promised land? The land of milk and honey, God's provision. They'd wandered for 40 years in the desert. Joshua's like, hey, you know, let's, just, let's send out 10 guys, some spies, let's go take a look at what, what, we're, what we're about to acquire because of God's greatness. And what the spies come back and do? They're giants, man! We, we will get obliterated. We don't stand a chance if we go there. And the whole town of Israel, the whole community of Israel is like, yo, we don't want anything to do with giants. It was fear. It was fear that needed to be met with extreme faith. What about Jonah? Hey, I want you to go preach the gospel. God calling a prophet. I want you to go preach the gospel to this really rough group of people. Jonah says, nope. Jumps on a boat, heads the opposite direction. Bada bing, bada boom, fish, yeah. Fear cripples us. The fear that we feel can cripple us. 
And I believe that the way we combat that fear matters. David chose to combat his fear by taking a census, by putting pen to paper and seeing, do I have enough men to conquer this, to to do what God has called me and equipped me to do? I wonder, just in our own lives, how often we do this. God, you've called me to do this. And the first thing you do in response is go check your bank account. I'm supposed to, you know, I'm supposed to go on this mission trip, I'm supposed to do this. Well, that, that's not possible, God, sorry. Uh, the, the numbers just aren't there. What if the first thing you do when you face fear is you kind of resort to your own wisdom? And I'm, I'm just going to, and I'm just going to figure this out. I'm, I'm smart enough. I'm strong enough to do this. I, I, I know that God's calling me, and, but you know what? I can't always trust that he's going to see this through. So, you know, like I, I, better, I better get a good plan. I better get a real good plan. I better, I better check all the boxes. better make sure that, you know, it's all written out. I've got people signing off on it. And You know what? Uh, this, is, this is really one that I kind of lend myself towards. What about when you're called by God and you run the numbers, like the probabilities, the percentages? Hey, it says that my God is a God that heals, right? But my doctor said, you got a 20% chance. And, and that knowledge, those percentages, they, they incite fear. They, they begin to cripple you. That's 20%, that's not good. God's math doesn't always equal our human math. I've already mentioned, like, you know what, oh, God's calling me to go to this city or to this country to, for a short term or a long term. And, and, you know, but it's just, the percentages just aren't there. I mean, the cost of living is so much higher. And, and, there, and there's, there's, you know, it's dangerous. Like, three people in the last five years have been killed there. But it's, I mean, I don't want to be number four. You research yourself into more fear. You're trying to combat fear. But you research yourself into more fear trying to prove that you can do this or that, that you don't necessarily need God to come through. One of the best things that you can do when you're facing fear, one of the best things that you can do when you're afraid is not put pen to paper to try to logically work your way through it. It is to fall on your face before God and say, I'm terrified. I'm terrified, God. And then he will respond as he did to Isaiah in Isaiah 41.10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will strengthen you, and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. As the band comes back up here, I, I do want to give you one biblical, plausible, if you can't just like fall flat, that's the best way. If you're facing fear, if you're struggling with something, decisions, whatever it is, you are, I think, biblically allowed to pull a Gideon. Gideon was told by God, 
that you are going to restore Israel. You are going to bring them back. You are going to remove them from the hands of our enemies. And Gideon goes, I, I'm a farmer. I, uh, what? No, you, 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 you told the wrong guy. And God sends the angel of the Lord multiple times and tells him, like, you go, you go. I will defeat them for you. You go. You're my guy. And, and every time Gideon's like, I'm not sure. And then Gideon and God have this conversation, and it was, hey, here's, here's all I need you to do, God. Uh, just, I, I, it doesn't make sense that you're calling me, but I'm going to throw my fleece out, okay? I'm going to throw it out. And, um, and, and it's, what I need you to do is I need you to make it very wet and the ground around it very dry. And I'll check it in the morning, and if it is, then I'll, then I'll know this is you, and I'll follow you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and you know what? God did that. He goes out there and says he literally wrung out his fleece. And Gideon's my boy. Because then he goes, okay, that was cool. But here's the deal. Just to make sure someone didn't come by and like water my fleece, make sure it was you, I just flip it this time. So I want the fleece to be completely dry and everything else around to be sopping wet. Just, just to make sure no one's pulling a prank on me, God. Next morning, dew all over the earth. Fleece is completely dry. And he goes, okay, God, here I go. I'm not saying God is delighted when we test him, when he calls us and repeatedly tells us, this is you, you should go, just be, be a champion, be, be full of faith, have no fear, for I am with you. I'm not saying he delights when we test him, but I am saying he's a gracious God who will, at least in Gideon's case, oblige. It's not a disobedient heart, it's just a, it's an anxious heart. But in all those stories, Moses, spies, Jonah, Gideon, whatever God called them to do, it ended up getting done. Now, it doesn't say whether or not the spies were like at the front of the line, but God still moved his people into the promised land. God, God's gonna do what he's gonna do. But if fear is crippling you, if, if it's holding you back, just fall on your face before God who tells you you don't have to fear. I'm with you, I'm your God. I'll be your strength, I'll be your helper. I've got you. Today, if, if you wanna talk with someone, have people up here to pray with you. We have communion in the back of the rooms, so love you, take that. It's individually, as families, just as the Lord prompts you to remember his goodness and his sacrifice. But um, let's never let fear trump our faith cool father today I pray for boldness and a courage that comes not from our own strength our own ability our own understanding but a faith and a boldness and a strength that comes from you may we run hard God after all that you have for us may we obediently listen and then do Lord what you've called us to do we love you and we thank you it's in Jesus name we pray amen Let's stand. Let's respond to him.